0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Good Morning, as we learn from the cries of Israel recorded in the book of Lamentations. Together, we'll discover the depth of God's love for us, even in seasons of suffering, and learn to take our sorrows to the Savior. so wonderful to be here worshiping with so many beautiful faces. So good to see you and hear you all worship and lift our voices together to proclaim God's glory. On that note, let me just change the pace a little bit. As we think about a day, September 11th, uh, 2001. It's a day that, as the saying goes we will never forget, both individually and as a nation. And now those of us who are old enough can all tell you exactly where we were and what we were doing when we found out that a plane had crashed into the north tower of the Twin Towers building. Because at first, we all thought it was an accident, right? Just a a terrible fluke. And then 20 minutes later... Another plane hit the South Tower. And that's when it became apparent that this was not an accident at all. This was a planned attack. And I'll never forget the moment when I was listening to the radio and the broadcaster made the connection that the date was 911, that someone was sending a message a threat. We had an enemy. And as a country, as a nation, we all felt the ramifications of this terrible day when almost 3,000 people lost their lives and another 6,000 people were left with some kind of injury. It has left a permanent scar on us as a nation. And when these things happen, when we face drastic difficulties, disaster, and even death. Listen, when an invisible, microscopic enemy shuts down the world as we know it, killing 3.4 million people, infecting countless others, destroying families, depleting our savings accounts, bankrupting businesses, what do we do? How do we even begin to work through our suffering and process that kind of pain. We have to learn to cry out to God. And this process of bearing our soul before the Lord, of of grieving and mourning our losses, it's what the Bible calls lament. And so as we continue in our series, Good Morning, taking our sorrows to the Savior. Would you please join me in your Bibles or your Bible apps? Feel free to to get out your devices and power that up. Just find yourself in the book of Lamentations with me, Lamentations. While you find your place there, I I just want to remind you what's happening here because God's people have made political alliances uh, with with the surrounding nations, the bordering nations, with Egypt, Edom, Tyre, and Sidon. And they did this in order to protect themselves from the threat of the Babylonian armies. Uh, When God had been saying to them all along, look, don't trust these other nations to help you, turn to me. I want to be the one that you put your trust in. And instead, they turned away from God and they put their hope in man. And as they did this, they also became very comfortable and complacent in their faith. And so instead of being holy and set apart from the world, they actually began to blend in with it. And so that they actually looked very much like the pagans around them until finally God says, enough is enough. And so while they had seen time and time again God's divine power demonstrated in his protection and his provision for them, Now they would see his divine power executed as judgment against them. And he removes his hand of protection and provision over them and he allows the Babylonian armies to invade the nation, to carry the people off into exile and actually destroy the temple itself. And so it's like all the promises of God were being undone, right? No longer are they being blessed and protected by God. No longer are they even in the promised land anymore. And the temple, the the precious place where the very presence of God was dwelling among them, it is destroyed. And this is very much a 9-11 type of moment for them. One which happened not only once, but twice in Israel's past. Now, we talked a little bit about Jesus predicting the second time that the temple would be destroyed in our study of the Olivet Discourse. But it's interesting to know that both times this devastation, destruction, and death in in the destruction of the temple, both times it occurred on the ninth day of the month of Av. Solomon's temple fell in 586 B.C., on the ninth of Av, and the second time the temple would be destroyed, it was also destroyed on the very same day. Years later, on the ninth of Av, and, and what that means is the ninth day of the eleventh month. And so, while we typically refer to the to the day, the month first, and then the day, the Jewish people would always refer to the day first and then the month. And so, as as they record these events in their history books, they would write 9 9/11. And I don't say that to stir up all kinds of conspiracy theories or anything like that. But just to say that these two events were quite literally 9-11 moments for them in Israel's past. For the Jewish people, the term 9-11 is significant for them. It was significant for them way before September 11, 2001. Because it doesn't just mean that two towers fell, but that two temples were destroyed. On their 9 11. And so it had the same kind of effect on them, you understand, both individually and as a nation, where it left a permanent scar behind. So that to this very day, on the 9th of Av, the Jewish people will read from God's word. They will read the book of Lamentations as a commemoration, as a remembrance of the fall of Jerusalem. And the destruction of the temple. A time when when they had identified a powerful enemy in their lives. But it's not who you might think. Because it's not the Babylonians whom they understand to be their enemy. It is God. And what do you do when you understand your enemy to be God? Today we'll learn that when God becomes the enemy, we must cry out. So let's read this together. Lamentations chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says, How the Lord, in his anger, has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He's not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah, He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe. He has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. And so the first thing I want to notice here is that God is righteous in pouring out his anger. God is righteous in pouring out his anger. Verse 1 gives us this picture of the nation of Judah being under a cloud of God's anger. But this isn't like the old Saturday morning cartoons, right? When when one of the characters would be under a little rain cloud and they'd be trying to get away, but it would just follow them around wherever they go, zapping them with lightning. This is a cloud of God's wrath, his fierce anger being poured out like fire. And it has created widespread devastation. Even the temple, his footstool, is destroyed. Nothing was exempt from his all-consuming wrath, who the poet says, God shows them no pity in this. Why? Well, if you remember, after the fall of man to sin in, in the Garden of Eden in Genesis, God begins to make a series of covenants, promises, promises, to demonstrate his unending love and his grace and his mercy toward humanity. And so God calls a group of people, an entire nation for himself through Abraham. And God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. But as my people, here's how you are to live. As a demonstration of who I am and your relationship with me. And if you don't, Well, there's going to be consequences. And we know what happens. God's people rebel against him. They fall into all kinds of sin and idolatry. And so eventually, what do we see? God removes his hand of protection and provision over their lives, and they fall into the hands of the Egyptians, where they are then enslaved for hundreds of years but God does not abandon them he is still loving and merciful and full of grace and so eventually God hears their prayers he hears the cries of his people for help and it's through Moses that God delivers them from Egyptian slavery to freedom in the promised land the land that is flowing with milk and honey and God says okay I am your God you are my people And as my people, this is how you are to live. And if you don't, then once again, will there be consequences? And we read about these consequences all the way back in in the book of Deuteronomy. This is what it says in Deuteronomy uh, 28. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. There you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite. There shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot, but the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you night and day. You shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you'll say, oh, if it were only the evening. And in the evening you'll say, if only it were the morning because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sights that your eyes shall see. And as we study the book of Lamentations, unfortunately, that is exactly what is happening. It's like, I mean, imagine this. It's it's, it's like you go out to eat with someone and you're feeling kind and generous. And so when the bill comes, you say, hey, you know what, Don't, don't worry about it. It's my treat. I got this. And they say, really? Wow, I-, I mean, you don't have to do that, but-, but thank you so much. And then the next time you go out to eat, you know, you have a good time and the bill comes. And all of a sudden they're looking at you like, you, uh, you-, you got this, right? You-, you taking care of this thing? And you don't know what's going on. I mean, maybe they forgot their wallet or, you know, you don't want to embarrass them. And so you're happy to pay again. And then the next time comes around and they actually invite you to come out to dinner. And you get there and there's a big crowd because they've invited all kinds of friends to come along. And they are ordering steak and lobster and champagne and caviar. I mean, it is lifestyles of the rich and famous. And then when the bill comes, they have the audacity to stand up and say, "Oh, he's paying for everything." He <laughs> can just give the bill to him." That is outrageous, right? This person is taking advantage of you and your kindness. You were being generous and gracious toward them, and now, now it's like it's become an expectation. And you would be perfectly right to be angry in that moment. And that's not too far off from how Jerusalem had been treating God for hundreds of years. I mean, generation after generation, because they saw how in the past, God had so graciously overlooked the sins of their ancestors, and so they assumed that God would do the same for them. that They were exempt from God's discipline. It's almost like they believed that God was obligated to bless them, to keep them safe, to prosper them, no matter how they lived. Or don't get me wrong, they still came to church. They still came and participated in everything that was going on in the temple because they thought that that is what made them safe. But at the end of the day, their lives look just like the pagans all around them. You see, they relied on the routines and rituals of religion instead of relying on a relationship with God. And if we're not careful, we can easily make the same mistake where we think, oh, if I just come to church, <laughs> hey, if I just sing the songs, if I just, if I just give a little bit, then... Then I don't have to worry about how I live, really. I mean, my sin doesn't really matter that much. And that's just not the case. Lamentations is an example of what happens when God says, Look, I love you enough to say, This is enough. You cannot do this anymore. And so in verses 3 and 4, we see that God's righteous right hand, which was used to provide provision and protection over Jerusalem, has now been removed. And not only has it been removed, but it actually reaches back into the quiver and begins firing arrows. And now again, it's the Babylonians who are inflicting all of this damage. But they're just the arrows, you understand. They are the means To this end, but who's the one firing the arrows? Who is the one who's actually responsible for it all? The poet says, God is. That's why, if you look down at verse 17 with me, it says, The Lord has done what he purposed, he has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity, he has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. All of the pain, all of the suffering, all of the sorrow, God was behind all of it. And so God seems to have become the enemy because he is pouring out his anger, but he is perfectly righteous in doing so. And the next thing we see in this passage is that God is exhaustive in dealing with our sin. God is absolutely exhaustive in dealing with our sin. Let's pick this up uh, in verse 5. We read once again, the Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all of its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. And he has multiplied the daughter of Judah's mourning and lamentation. He's laid to waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins, his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raise a clamor in the house of the Lord, as on the day of the festival the Lord Determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion, he stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. And so once again, we see the extent of God's wrath and anger against their sin. It's not just deep, right? It is wide. It is exhaustive. The walls and the gates of the city were destroyed. The houses and the palaces were pillaged and burned to the ground. Even the glorious temple is no more. It is gone. Sin had infiltrated every area of their lives, and so God destroys it all. You can't see it in our English translation, but Jeremiah is writing this lamentation in the form of an alphabetic acrostic. Uh, That's why there's 22 verses in this chapter because each one of them starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And practically speaking, this kind of mnemonic device was very helpful. It was used to help people be able to remember and to be able to recite God's word before they were able to carry around Bibles. But poetically... Poetically, this kind of writing in acrostic form also helped communicate the fullness, the completeness of the message. In other words, Jeremiah is describing the devastation and destruction of Jerusalem quite literally from A to Z. And notice, it doesn't matter how the people of God identified themselves, whether it was of Zion or of Jacob or of Judah. It didn't matter if they were a king or a ruler or a priest. Everyone was guilty of sin against God, and therefore everyone was going to be held accountable for it. See, God can't just look the other way. God can't just sweep our sin underneath the rug and absolutely forget about it. Sin must be punished. But that's what makes the gospel such a beautiful thing. Did you know that when it comes to the cross of Christ and the crucifixion, that that isn't something that God just allowed to take place? In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter stands up. He's preaching this incredible message. He says, this Jesus who was delivered up according to what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So God caused the cross to take place. This horrific event where he pours out his holy wrath against sin on Jesus, his innocent son. Why? Why would he do this? John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world. That's why he gave his only son. Isaiah 53 describes it like this. But he, speaking of Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds, we are healed. Why? Because all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And for this reason, Isaiah 53 continues by saying, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And so just as God is responsible for the destruction of Jerusalem, God is responsible for the death of Jesus on the cross. Because that is how serious the consequences of sin are. It cost God the Father, his son. It cost Jesus, his life. The ability to be forgiven by a righteous and holy God is directly linked to the significance of his sufficient sacrifice for us. And if sin was not a big deal, then the cross would not have been necessary. So you may be the recipient of God's grace and his mercy in the forgiveness of your sins. But it is only because God's righteousness was levied upon somebody else in Christ, you receive a righteousness that you did not earn, that you cannot own, that, that was freely given to you because somebody else paid that debt on your behalf. And so it is at the crucifixion of Christ that we see this beautiful mingling, this coming together of God's mercy and God's justice. And while we all love hearing words like redemption and grace and forgiveness, we should also remember that there is something underneath those words because redemption is only necessary Grace is only amazing, forgiveness is only needed because God is holy and God is just and divine judgment is a sure and absolute thing. Every single sin will be dealt with. And what worries me is that we live in a culture that is filled with a regular ambiance of sin, Sin within the world, even sin within us. And with sin being so prevalent, so common all around us, it can almost seem like it isn't really that dangerous. And so we can begin to trifle with it or treat it as if it's something to be played with, to be toyed with, but it is not. That's the way the Israelites began to think. And it lulled them into a false sense of security until it was too late. And so God seems to have become the enemy here, causing all kinds of destruction and devastation. But ultimately, it is out of his love for his people that he is doing these things. And so that's our last point today. Where, where, why, is, uh, why is all this going on? Because God is working to bring us to repentance. God is working to bring us to repentance. Look at verse 19 with me. This is the call that goes out. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. So here we see what the Lord is trying to get at here, what his motivation behind it all is. The poet says, look around you. You see the widespread devastation and destruction, the consequences of your sin have come. So for crying out loud, I mean, your children are fainting in the streets for hunger, so please repent. And we see the heart and the disposition of repentance through three actions here. First, we see Arise. Right? This is an action. This means don't just sit around moping, saying, oh, woe is me, waiting for some kind of hope of things to get better. No, do something. Lamentation is supposed to spur you into action. Well, what are we to do? We cry out. We cry out to God. You pour out your heart like water before the Lord, confessing your sin, grieving and mourning sin. And this is meant to bring us to repentance, to a right relationship with God. That is what all of this is about. You see, God does not want to see the Israelites destroyed by their sin and their false faith. And so it is out of his love for them that he destroys everything else. You see, God would much rather destroy the place instead of the people. There's two kinds of discipline that the Lord uses in our lives. Instructive discipline and corrective discipline. Sometimes, in God's grace, he instructs us. He teaches us by allowing us to suffer immediate consequences. Right? So we do something we shouldn't have, we make a poor decision, and right away... We get a slap on the wrist, and we immediately feel the consequences. And we say, ah, that hurt. I don't want to do that again. And then there are other times when the consequences are not immediate. And so we do something we shouldn't. And, and nothing bad seems to happen, right? Nobody found out about it. Uh, we didn't get in trouble over it, and, and we think we got away with it. And so what do we do? We're tempted to do it again and again until eventually it becomes so much a part of our lives. We've hardened our hearts so much that eventually it doesn't even feel wrong anymore. But it's not that there are no consequences for that sin, you understand. They're just delayed until eventually, in God's grace, he brings corrective discipline into our lives. This is a radical intervention, right? And it's not pretty. There is so much pain and suffering involved in an intervention, but it is done out of love. And that's what we see happening here. This is a radical intervention for the nation of Judah with much pain and suffering in order to bring them to repentance. And we all know someone like this, someone who has been brought to the end of their rope. Or maybe it's you. Maybe this is a part of your story where you had to be brought to absolute rock bottom in your life before you were finally able to cry out to God. And the circumstances of those situations are terrible. They are tragic. But don't you see that it is a wonderful gift of God in His loving kindness, in His grace, in His mercy that you were finally able to see your sin for what it was and instead of loving it, you began to love Him. It is a miraculous work of the Spirit of God in our lives to bring about repentance. And I wish I could say that that once that takes place in your lives, that your temptations just go away. But the truth is that this is an ongoing process. This happens again and again. This is something the Bible calls sanctification as we are made more and more like Christ. And Lamentations is a sobering warning that our hearts need to be tuned They need to be dialed in again and again in the realities of this truth, right? That, That God is utterly holy. He is holy, 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 and we are sinful. And that's one of the reasons why the gathering together of the saints is so important, Right? So that we can proclaim the excellencies of Christ to each other, to the Lord through praise and worship so we can hear what he has to say to us through his holy word. And so that we may humbly respond by confessing our sins before him. And although, you, although you've come to him hundreds and hundreds of times to receive God's grace and mercy, you continue to come to him again and again. Church, we must learn how to lament. When we feel the incredible weight of the consequences of sin in this world, whether it's our own sin or somebody else's, we must cry out. I want to leave you with a passage from Hebrews 12. So see that you you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. And therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's go before him today. Let's continue to praise him, to worship him, to proclaim his holy name, to bring our petitions before him. And let's continue in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the gift of your word today. Because on one hand, it is a firm warning of the consequences of sin. God, you know we are prone to wander. There is latent sin laying at the bottom of our hearts that gets stirred up from time to time. And sometimes it shocks us. And so we must be reminded of the consequences of sin, but on the other hand, oh, it's a wonderful reminder of how good and gracious you are. Father, thank you for your patience toward us. You know the struggles we face on a daily basis. You know and you understand all the unspoken hurts that are represented here in this room today any pain and grief that we might be feeling, uh, the sense of loss that we might be experiencing, and even any worries about future pain or losses. Father, you know it all. You see it, you hear it. And you invite us into your presence, into your loving embrace to comfort us. God, we thank you for that. God, grant us the strength to continue to rely on you and you alone. Help us to learn to lament so that we might grow in relationship to you. It's in the name of Jesus. And by the power of the spirit, we pray these things today. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together